0: That. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Samuel 21 this evening, 1 Samuel 21. By chapter 20, David has discovered that everything that gave him security was being taken away. Now, he's a man after God's own heart, but we're going to begin to see that, that in this chapter, we're going to see that he's going to make some bad decisions. Why we make bad decisions and what we can learn from that. And so we have discovered that David, he he lost his security. He lost the security of his job. He was an officer in the king, in King Saul's army, but now the king is against him and wants him dead. And so he lost his job as an officer in the Israeli army. He loses the security of his position as the son-in-law of the king. Chapter 19, King Saul sent his soldier, uh, soldiers to David and Michael's apartment to kill him. But David fled that night in the middle of the night. David lost the security of Samuel, uh, the prophet, his spiritual mentor and advisor. News came to King Saul that David was at Naoth. And so David leaves Samuel and goes to see Jonathan. And then David loses the security of his closest friend, At the end of chapter 20, Jonathan comes out in the field, meets David, and confirms that his father still wants to kill David. I said last week that this is the last time David and Jonathan saw each other. Uh, They actually have one more brief meeting in the wilderness of Ziph in a wooded area, 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 16 to 18. But by now, their times of fellowship as friends. It's come to an end. In chapter 20, verse 3, David says there is nothing but a step between me and death, we tried to imagine how David was feeling. And so, have you, ever, have you ever lost a job? Have you ever lost a position of respect? Have you ever lost a spiritual leader? Have you ever lost a close friend? And you put it all together, and that's where we find David. And we learned last week that there is no earthly security that is a substitute for trusting in God. When we put our security in earthly things, when we put our security in people, it just erodes our walk of faith until it crumbles and is destroyed. When we put our security in earthly things and people, we discover real quick that it's only going to be temporary and not long-term. Would you please stand with me tonight as I read the opening verses of 1 Samuel chapter 21, and we see David making some Really bad decisions. We're going to find out why and what we can learn from that. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business. And hath said unto me, Uh, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants uh, to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, holy bread, Yet the young men have kept themselves at least from women. David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner of common, yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread. bread. That was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, uh, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belongeth to Saul. And David said unto Himelech, And is there not here under thine hand spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it. For there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it me. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. May we pray. Now, Father, tonight we, we truly can relate with David in making mistakes, making bad decisions, and having to live with those consequences. God, we're here in your house tonight because we want to we learn how we can recover, how we can reset, how we can restore our relationship with you when we have gone astray like a sheep wandering away from the shepherd. Speak to our hearts tonight. If there be one that knows not Christ, I pray God tonight... They would see the importance of truly being born again into the family of God. Now, for each Christian, strengthen our faith, guide us by your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A young bank executive was preparing to succeed the legendary founder of the bank as CEO. And as he prepared to receive the mantle of leadership, he asked his mentor for some advice. "'Sir, in your more than 40 years of leadership, "'what has been the secret of your tremendous success?' The crusty old man looked up from his desk and replied gruffly, two words, "'Good decisions.' The junior executive was impressed with the simplicity of the answer, but it felt compelled to ask the inevitable follow-up question, "'Sir, what is the key to making good decisions?' The CEO replied, one word, experience. And the leader-elect thought about the answer for a moment and said, pardon me for pressing the issue, but I must ask one final question. What is the key for gaining experience necessary to make good decisions? Two words. The old man replied, bad decisions. Bad decisions. decisions. We all make them. We all make them. And if you haven't, just keep living. All right? It's going to come. Uh, the key is being able to learn from those bad decisions. The key is learning from the mistakes that we made. Now, I don't know about you, but, but uh, being in one place for a long time, uh, there's some history. And so, the longer you've been here, the more you know about the mistakes and bad decisions that I've made. You know, I just can't believe pastor would say that. I can't believe he would do that. Can't believe he'd take his coat off twice in the same Sunday. Three sermons in a row. Now, if your expectation is that your pastor is without mistake and without making bad decisions, you're going to have to lower your expectations. But if you have that expectation of me, what about your husband? What about your wife? What about your kids? What about your parents? What about your friends? We all make mistakes. Why do we make bad decisions? Why do we make these mistakes? And and what can we learn from them? Have you heard the expression, you can't put an old head on young shoulders? (laughs) Maybe that's part of the reason we read in Proverbs again and again. My son, hear the instruction of thy father. My son, forsake not the law of thy mother. God says to young people, listen to your parents. Listen to your parents. Why should you make the same mistakes your parents have made? You're going to make enough bad decisions on your own, so at least don't duplicate theirs and add yours to it. Learn from them. You'll have plenty of time to make enough of your own bad decisions along the way. So here we find David. He's going to come to Nob. So look at chapter 21, verse 1. David came to Nob. He came to Nob. Now, Nob is one of the hills of Jerusalem. We don't know exactly, but some scholars uh, think that it is Mount Scopus. It is the uh, high hill there in the northeast side of Jerusalem. Others think it might be a mile or two away, but Isaiah implies that you can see Jerusalem from Nob. So, Mount Scopus is a is a pretty good guess. Uh, Many times you who take a Holy Land trip, you'll go to Mount Scopus to get a nice view uh, of the city. It's definitely close to the city. Uh, Again, Isaiah said you could see the city from it. It's called the city of priests in chapter 22, verse 19. Now notice what happens. He, He comes to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech is the high priest at the time. We're going to find out that there are more than 80 priests and their families living in this community, chapter 22 verses 18 and 19. Ahimelech is afraid. Look in verse 1. He is afraid. Why? Because David comes alone. And he asked him, "Why are you come alone and no man is with you?" It just doesn't make sense. Now look at David's answer. And you know the truth. But here's the lie. Verse 2 David says to the priest, The king, Saul, has commanded me a business. He said unto me, Uh, Let no man know anything of the business whereon I have sent you, where I have commanded you. I have appointed my servants that are with me to go to such and such a place. David tells a story that is not true. I am on a top secret mission from the king. That is why I'm traveling alone. Uh, My men, they're in another location. Now, what sounds skeptical is that David left so urgently that he didn't even bring a sword. He didn't bring a spear. He didn't bring any food. Uh, that'd be like a plumber going on a job without his wrenches. be like a cop- carpenter going to a job without his hammer and saw. Look what David asked for, verse 3. Uh, give, me, uh, give me five loaves of bread or whatever's under your hand. I need some food. Uh, verse 4. the priest answered and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves uh, from women, I can give it to you. The only thing that Ahimelech has is the hallowed bread, the holy bread, the show bread. You see at the tabernacle, every Sabbath, every Saturday, 12 loaves of bread were taken into the holy place and put on the table on the north side of the holy place. And they were a witness all week long, that God, Jehovah God, will, will sustain, that God will care. God will take care of his people. And at the end of that week, they brought in 12 new loaves and put in that table. And then the old loaves would be then given to the priests uh, to be able to eat. They were dedicated to the priests. And so, Ahimelech is, is saying in verse 6, I, I only have holy bread, uh, but I'll, I'll give it to you. And so, he gives him the holy bread from before the Lord. And then David asked for a weapon in verse 8. Do you have a weapon? Do you have a sword? Do you have a spear? He says, I have nothing here, verse 9, except the sword of Goliath. You remember that giant? The giant that you slew? I have his sword here, and it is wrapped up. There's nothing like it, David says. That's great. Now, the Bible does not take the time to give us a commentary on the moral ethics of what has just happened. There's, There's There's just a record of the events of the story that we're reading. And so some wonder if David made up this story to keep Ahimelech in the dark. Perhaps to save the high priest from being implicated in aiding an enemy of the king. So so the thought is, well, maybe David is telling a story because he thinks it's going to protect Ahimelech. If David did not tell Ahimelech that he was uh, fleeing from Saul, that he could rightly claim, what do they call it? Plausible deniability. I think they know all about it in Washington. Uh, But he could say, "I, I, I knew nothing about it. And that's exactly what happened. I didn't know he was a fugitive from the king when I helped him. And so David's story may have actually been an attempt to protect Ahimelech. Today we call that situation. Situation ethics. You understand what that means? Situation ethics. The end justifies the means. That is, I can set aside God's commandments. I can set aside God's truth. I can set aside right and wrong because if I do wrong, I can help someone else. I can help myself. I can help others by doing wrong. You take that to its logical conclusion and it ends with murder. It's it's like people going in and and, uh, killing an abortion doctor to stop abortions. That's sin. That's wrong. That's situation ethics. That's the end justifies the means. Go ahead and lie if it makes you look good. Go ahead and lie if it protects someone else. But we'll see in the next chapter, David's lie didn't protect anyone in the city of Nob. He would have to live with the conscience of causing the slaughter of all the families at Nab. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Hold your finger here and turn to Matthew chapter 12. And I'll share an event that happened in the life of Christ with his disciples. In Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field of on the Sabbath day, a Saturday, a Jewish holy day, the hungry disciples grabbed some grain, and look what happens. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were enhungered and began to pluck the ears of the corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. The Pharisees said, Jesus, your disciples, your disciples are are breaking God's law. Your disciples are, are working on the Sabbath day. They're breaking the Sabbath laws. Now, the truth is they were not breaking the Sabbath laws. They were breaking oral tradition, but oral tradition was not God's word, not at all. There were no laws forbidding the plucking of grain on the Sabbath to satisfy your hunger. In fact, gleaning handfuls of grain was specifically permitted. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. What was prohibited was was working on the Sabbath for profit. A farmer was not to harvest on the Sabbath, uh, but an individual could glean grain. Remember, uh, Ruth uh, was gleaning grain. The disciples did not sin. Clearly, Jesus would have rebuked them if they did. Now, look at Jesus' answer to them in verses 3 and 4. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God, that's at Nob, that's the tabernacle, and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Sabbath laws do not restrict things out of necessity. Jesus later said, what, what happens if you have an animal that falls into a pit? Are you going to leave him there to die on the Sabbath? No, you're going to throw down a rope, you're going to get that ox out of that pit. Now, now it's true, it's true that, that the, 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 the commandment, the policy was the showbread is for the priests only. But God... But God is understanding and God is gracious and God is going to, to allow and give permission for the showbread to be given to David and to his men. One commentator wrote, God was not offended by David's act done to satisfy a legitimate need when his men were weak with hunger. Back to First Samuel. But now I want you to jump ahead to chapter 22. And verse 10. And we're going to see something that's not mentioned in the story so far. Chapter 22, verse 10. Doeg goes to Saul, and uh, he is a snitch, and he is telling King Saul about what happened. But I want you to see chapter 22, verse 10. And he, Ahimelech, inquired of the Lord for him, for David and gave victuals, food and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Do you see what happens here? Ahimelech, though not recorded in chapter 21, Ahimelech asked God, what should I do? He asked God if he should give the bread to David and God the Father says yes. I know this is difficult to understand. Uh, David lied and we don't know the the complete source of the lie, again, trying to protect Ahimelech or not, but it's a lie. He lied. He asked for food. He asked for weapons. The lie is wrong. Just like Rahab when Rahab lied. I don't know where those spies are. <laughs> she's got them hidden now back under the flax. Yet she's in Hebrews chapter 11 for her faith. The lie is wrong. God the Father gave Ahimelech the green light to give the food to David and not let him and the men starve. And then Jesus cites the same story to explain to the Pharisees that it was okay for the disciples to eat grain on the Sabbath. What does that tell us? You know what it tells me? It tells me that God is very gracious. He is so gracious God does not give us what we deserve. In fact, if he gave us what we deserve, the auditorium would be empty tonight, right? It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Great is his faithfulness. And so we ought to be overflowing with gratitude to God. I've heard people say, When I die, I just want God to give me what I deserve. I say, you're a fool. You're a fool. You want God to give you what you deserve? You deserve, you deserve the penalty for millions and millions of sins. Now we want God's grace. And so God is showing grace, great grace uh, to David in this situation. If God is going to give grace to David then shouldn't we be gracious with one another? So let me share a, a scripture from James chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art, not, thou, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. James says, who are you to judge another? So if God is going to be gracious to David when he clearly told a lie, I think we should be gracious to one another in this church family and into your own family. Now why? We find out why David did this. That brings us to verse 10, chapter 21, verse 10. And David arose and fled that day. Why? Here it is. For fear. For fear of Saul. David was afraid. You know, we can make some doozies of bad decisions when we are afraid. Now, you're not going to tell about yourself tonight, but I want you to think about someone else that would make a really bad decision because they are afraid of what? And so go ahead and uh, brainstorm it with me tonight. Fear of what will, will prompt someone to make a bad decision? To make a bad mistake? Fear of what? Fear of what? Knowing Jesus. Well, I'm talking about something that would make you afraid. That, make you, that If you want to fear the Lord, you're going to do the right thing a fear that would make you do the wrong thing fear of, men. fear of men okay so that's kind of broad but we could uh, that fear of men that could be that could be give me something specific under that category fear of losing your job. over here what'd you say fear of losing your job all right fear of losing your job uh, so if you uh uh, maybe the employer has something going on there, and so you you tell a lie because you don't want to lose your job. Someone else, same thing. Dave.
1: You're
0: a you once All right. <laughs> That's motivating you to do the right thing, right? <laughs> right? Fear of, from your Fear of discipline from your parents. Someone else. Failure. All right. Fear of failure. Yes? Fear of losing friends. All right, fear of losing friends. So you want to be cool with your friends? So you might tell a lie, might do something that you shouldn't do because you want to impress them. How about fear of having sin found out? How about fear of of harm? Fear of failure has been mentioned. Fear and fear begins to grip us, and we begin to think the wrong thoughts and the wrong solutions, many years later, David would sit down and he would write this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow death, I will, what? Fear no evil, for thou art with me. Now David has lost his position, he's lost his wife, he's lost his spiritual mentor, he's lost his closest friend, now comes the final blow, David loses his self-respect is it not true that one bad decision can lead to another look at verse 10 look at verse 10 David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul now look at his next decision and he went to Achish the king of Gath that's not so smart David decides to go to Gath and and that's the way it is with lying when people tell a lie then they got to tell another lie to cover up the first lie and it just is a domino effect Gath not too far away down south of Jerusalem. Gath was the headquarters of the Philistines. It was the Washington, D.C. of the Philistines. Gath, does that name sound familiar? Yes. It's the hometown of the champion. What's his name? Goliath. David's going to walk in town incognito with a sword. (laughs) Whose sword is it? It's Goliath's sword. I think Goliath waved it around a few times. Maybe David thought he could go in there and not be recognized. But that's not what happened, is it? Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did not they sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Apparently, the Philistines have been listening to Jewish radio. They are familiar with the hit song, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his ten thousands. I'm sure it was the number one song for months. I mean, it was top of the charts. They knew the song. Here's the guy, verse 12. And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, king of Gath. Hmm, what happens? David is afraid. Why do we make bad decisions? We make bad decisions out of fear. All kinds, all kinds of fears. He's afraid. Fear grips his heart. The servants of King Achish grab him and they bring him to him. Verse 13, David begins a short acting career. Notice in verse 13, And he changed his behavior before them, and he feigned himself mad Insane in their hands, and he scrabbled on the door of the gate and let his spit fall down upon his beard. Wow which proves very convincing. He's acting crazy. I mean, he's scribbling on the gates. Maybe he got some rocks and, or some sticks, and he's, he, I'm sure the groundskeepers are very upset that he's messing up their gates. And, and then he's drooling, and the drooling comes down his, his beard. It's horrible behavior. David's behavior is not becoming of a future king of Israel. He has now lost his own self-respect. And so, verse 14 and 15 the scriptures never lack for humor. Notice what happens. Then said Akish unto his servants, Lo, you see, the man is mad. He is crazy. He's out of his mind. Wherefore then have you brought him to me? Have I need of some more madmen? That ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Uh, shall this fellow come into my house? Uh, King Akish says, Do I lack madmen? I got enough crazy nuts around me. <laughs> Don't bring me one more. Get him out of here. Uh, David. Could not even find refuge in the camp of the enemy. They tossed him out. Chapter 22, verse 1. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. It's about halfway back from Gath to to Jerusalem. Brother Wayne Cooper preached a message, a terrific message last November called Critical Cave Choices. Uh, you can find it on the website. You go back about eight months, go to Facebook videos. You'll find it November 25th. What's going to happen is David's going to go to this cave. Everything's been taken away. His position, his job, his wife, his spiritual mentor, his self-respect. And he ends up in a cave. He's probably been to the cave before. He knew where it was. Dark, dreary, no food, no friends, And we're going to find later that three Psalms come out of this experience. And David, when he got to the end of his rope, he tied a knot and he looked up and he called and cried out to God. God heard him. God heard him. And it reset his life. You can make some bad decisions, you can make some bad mistakes and sin, but you don't have to stay there. You can learn from it. You can grow from it. So how to overcome this fear that pushes us to these bad decisions? Here it is. How to overcome your fear, and that's build your faith. Build your faith. I have two references here, Romans ten seventeen. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? Word, Word of God. You just have to, you have to come to the place where you either believe the Word of God is, is from God, it is the voice of God, it is the message of God, that you believe that it's alive. Uh, God's word comes into our life and saves us, but God's word comes into our life and 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 remakes us, and remolds us, and conforms us to the image of Christ. Jesus is the living word, and this Bible is the written word, and we have evidence that it has been preserved from the time that it was written from that first, first uh, book of Job uh, that was written even before Moses wrote all the way down to Revelation that the Apostle John wrote. God has preserved it, and we have it in our hands today, and we read it, and we listen to it, uh, taught and preached, and then we come to 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. You see, fear will make you think things that are not true. And who's the author of that? That's demonic, that's Satan. That's Satan. And people come to the end of the rope and they they begin to to make decisions, bad decisions, dark decisions. And God says, no, I don't want you to go that way. You get in the word of God. You be in God's house. You be in a place where you can learn and grow. And then you, you fill your mind with God's word. You read it. You listen to it. You listen to Christian music. You share what you learn on social media. You make it a part of your daily life. And you just watch. You watch your faith grow. It's the word of God, the seed of the power of the word of God will grow in your life. And what happens is uh, God's power begins to be released. And as God's power is released, your faith like a muscle becomes strong and that fear begins to evaporate. David, he learned this message. He learned it in a cave and you and I can as well. Fear, fear will prompt you to make bad decisions. Faith will guide you to make godly good decisions that bless others. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our time tonight to to look into the heart and life of David. Not a perfect man, but a man after your own heart, a man who gave us half of all of our Psalms, a man who we know more about than any other man in Scripture including Christ. Father, thank you for the, the, the rich details that we can read and study and learn and grow. And when we fall like David, may we get up like David. May we come to the word of God and fill our hearts and minds and souls with your truth. Meditate upon it because you've promised, you've promised success if we would believe and meditate and obey this precious word of God. I pray for that soul that might be in fear tonight regarding family, regarding finances, regarding home or relationships or work. Father, I pray they would seek you, seek your truth. May tonight be a night they go to the cave and find that you are already there waiting to guide, to empower. Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's all stand together. We'll sing a song of invitation about trust. Only trust him, only trust him. Maybe tonight, that's what you need to do. Let go of the fear. Let go of fear, begin to build your faith. As we sing, maybe you wanna pray in your seat, pray this altar as we come to the Lord tonight a Bible, please open to Philippians chapter 3 today. We've reached the halfway point in the letter to the Philippians. The theme is joy. We have discovered that our joy is in the Lord and no one can take it away. And Paul tells us of one more joy stealer and that is man-made religion. So now Paul opens up his heart and he gives a personal glimpse of his past. And he answers the question, what keeps most people out of heaven? Uh, There's a Bible on the bench there in front of you if you'd like to follow along or on your phone. Let's all stand together. I'd like to read from Philippians chapter 3, and I'll begin here in verse 1. Philippians chapter 3 in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. Uh, To me, indeed, is not grievous, uh, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh. I, the more, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law. I was blameless, Paul says. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. May we pray. Father, thank you now for the word of God that we hold in our hand. Thank you for this great book and the teaching That we find from it. And now, as we study this passage on salvation, I pray that each one of us here today will understand that your love and your forgiveness, your grace, is a gift, a gift that we receive by faith. So, Father, help us to turn from trusting in ourselves, trusting in our good works, our baptism our religious deeds and teach us that we might trust in you alone and find life, eternal life, forgiveness, peace, and joy in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Why do most people not go to heaven? What keeps them out of heaven? You know, the Bible the Bible is very clear that there are only two kinds of people in the world, in the spiritual world. And so there are the saved and there are the lost. There are believers and there are unbelievers. There are those that have a living relationship with the living God, and there are those who practice dead rituals and ceremonies. There's the righteous in their heart. And there's the religious. There are those that are bound for heaven and those that are bound for hell. May I ask you today, which of these two lists describes you? Are you sure? If not, today you can be sure because the Bible was written to help you to become a child of God, to become a believer, to become saved, to have the confidence that you know you're going to heaven. And so Paul begins in verse 1. Finally, Uh, this is a transition, not a conclusion. Paul writes to his dear friends in Philippi, and he encourages them. He says, rejoice. I want you to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, We have so many reasons to rejoice as Christians. Uh, We are saved. We are God's children. We are forgiven of all of our sins. Uh, We have God's Spirit living in us. We are bound for heaven. God has begun a spiritual work in us, and it continues to grow to this day. If we focus on our problems, if we focus on our trials, we'll become discouraged. We will become depressed. When this letter was taken by Epaphroditus, and he took it to the church at Philippi, and they read it, he said, I went to Rome to Paul in prison to cheer him up. But I found he cheered me up. He brought me joy. In fact, it's known all over the the Roman palace, the joy the apostle Paul has. Now, many things can rob us of joy. Difficult circumstances, irritable people, poor health. And now Paul's going to add one more to deal with, and that is false teachers who spread false religion. And Paul says, I know, I understand. He said, I used to boast in my religious achievements, but it did not bring me joy. If anyone was an overachiever, if anyone was a type A personality, from this passage, we discover it was Paul. Uh, now, Now, we all enjoy being recognized for effort, don't we? I mean, every major field of endeavor has awards for some type of outstanding achievement. And so universities, uh, they offer scholarships and companies give bonuses. The film industry has the Oscar. The music industry has the Grammy. The writing industry has the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, in sports, there are World Cups and there are World Championships. It is our society's way of saying, you are great, and once you reach that pinnacle of greatness, then you can, you can do commercials, right? And, and people will want to eat the cereal that you eat and they'll want to drive the car that you drive and, and you know you're really famous when you can do commercials. Do you know that, that many people think the same thing about God? If you'll just work hard, if you'll be super righteous and spiritual, that God will accept you into heaven. Uh, but the answer is no, no earthly awards will not give you what you lack deep in your heart, a peace with God, deep joy, and forgiveness. And so the winners and the record setters of our world, I mean, they are applauded, and they are admired, and and they are envied. Uh, Most people, they're just awestruck simply by being around celebrities. I I read a funny story that illustrates this fact. It, It may be legend, it may be true. A tourist was standing in line to buy an ice cream cone at a Westport, Connecticut ice cream parlor. And to her her utter shock, who should walk in and stand right behind her but but Paul Newman, uh, a very famous actor at the time. Well, the lady, even though she was rattled, she determined to maintain her composure. And she bought her ice cream and she turned confidently and she uh, left the store. To her horror... She realized she left the counter without her ice cream cone. And so she went back into the store to claim her cone. And as she approached the counter, the cone was not in the little circular holder. And for a moment, she stood there wondering what might have happened to it. Then she felt a, a polite tap on her shoulder. And turning, she was face to face with, you guessed it, Paul Newman. And the famous actor then told the lady that if she was looking for her ice cream cone, she had put it in her purse. Uh, Paul Newman's daughter, Nellie, says uh, she was there with her dad when it happened. Now, no matter how hard you work, uh, you'll never earn a ticket to heaven. And so in verses 2 and 3, Paul describes two groups of people. And so in group 1, he has the name dogs and evil workers and concision. Uh, Group 2 in verse 3, they are worshipers of God in the Spirit, rejoicers in Christ, no confidence in the flesh. There's a clear division between these two groups of people, exactly what the Lord Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 7. If you'll turn to page 2 of your notes, you'll see that narrow is the path to life, and broad is the way to destruction. Now the greatest preacher that ever lived is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the greatest sermon ever preached is a Sermon on the Mount, and in the middle of that sermon in Matthew chapter 7, this is what Jesus taught us, and so if, we, if you would look with me in your notes, I'd like us to say to, together today, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 15, would you please uh, read it with me out loud? Enter ye in at the straight gate, For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Jesus Warned us, He said that most people are on the broad road. He said that most people will will go to destruction. There are a few that find the narrow road. These are strong words. Do you know that our family and our friends and our coworkers, our world, do not want to hear these words, but they are true? Why would the Son of God warn us that most of the world is walking on the wrong spiritual road if it were not true? Jesus Christ is God. He's never told a lie. You can trust what he says. And so what keeps most people out of heaven? It's false religion. It's false religion. It's deceivers who deceive others. It's because people think everything is okay between them and God. They think God will receive them based on their good works. And so Paul writes in verse 1, it's not a grievous thing. That is, it's not a problem for me to write this to you again. In fact, it's safe. It's a safeguard for you to hear it again. He says, I need to warn you about the false teachers. He begins in verse 2. And with each description of the false teachers, he says, beware, He says, beware, and he repeats it a third time, beware. Now, look how Paul describes them. Verse 2, beware of the dogs. Now, Paul is not simply name-calling here. He is trying to make a point. He is not talking about pets. He's talking about wild, savage animals. 11 years ago this month, we adopted lily, Our little pet from Lancaster. Our first, oh, there she is. Our first stop after picking her up was Wawa. So I gave her a middle name. This is Lily Wawa Wendell. (laughs) And she's been a part of our family uh, for the last... 11 years. Look at uh, look at her today. Uh, look at those big brown eyes. Uh, I'm telling you that uh, uh, she just comes there and she sits like today. She got to lick my cereal bowl when I was done with it. Uh, Lily has helped us to bond to all you pet lovers, all you dog lovers here at church. This is not the kind of loyal pets and dogs that Paul is describing in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2. This is not what he's warning us about. You see, the, the dogs of Paul Paul's day were dirty, disease-carrying scavengers, and they ran in packs through the streets. They were dangerous. Dogs bark and growl, and so do these false teachers. They bark against the truth. And the Orthodox Jews they had a term for the Gentiles. Do you know what it was? They called Gentiles dogs. And so, for most of us here today, we're Gentiles. There might be a, we have a couple of Jewish people in the church, uh, but they would call all of us dogs. And Paul takes their term and he turns it around and he says, You who teach salvation by works, you're the dogs, you're the false teachers. Second warning, second description beware of evil workers. Do they work? Oh, yes, they work. But instead of working to help the cause of Christ, they work against the cause of Christ. They hurt it. What did they do against Paul? Well, three things. They taught false teaching, salvation is by good works. They verbally attacked Paul, they went after his character, they called him a Jewish traitor, they said, You're in it for the money. And then, number three, they physically attacked him. Do you know once they even stoned Paul at Lystra? Many times they planned to kill him. No wonder Paul told them, uh, and us, beware. You know, not much has changed in the last 2,000 years. Over the centuries, Christians have been called heretics. They have been called cannibals. They have been imprisoned. They have been tortured. They have been martyred and killed. This month, July, a Christian woman, Suzanne dear Kerkour, was raped and stoned to death in Syria by Islamic terrorists. Uh, Today, there are many in the media, and they want to slander God's church. They want to label God's people homophobic. They want to label God's people judgmental. And so they will lie, and they will say things. We've had it happen here. Oh, if you worship at that church, you can't eat certain foods. really? If you go to that church, you can't wear certain clothes. Really? You know, I, I wish I had a nickel for every time I have said, everyone is welcome in our services. Everyone is welcome in our services, no matter what they are wearing. Would you say that with me today? Everyone is welcome in our services, no matter what they are wearing. Amen? I mean, to come to our service, men, you don't have to wear a tie. And, and ladies, you don't have to wear a dress. Uh, Jesus taught us to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove and so I thought, I thought to, uh, to let you know that we really believe it I thought I'm going to take my coat off haven't done it in 35 years during a sermon <laughs> and plus it's hot up here right <laughs> everyone is welcome be wise as a serpent be harmless as a dove if a reporter or an adversary to our faith comes in here and wants to bait you with the question, beware, beware. Don't give them a sound bite. Uh, don't give them uh, something they can twist or post. Paul says, beware. If they ask questions about homosexuals, if they ask questions about transgenders, and they pull out their phone, and, and they're not looking for truth, they're just looking to be able to slander God's church, what should you do? They just want to criticize our faith. Don't give them the answer do what jesus did and ask them a question you know that's a good question but i'd like to ask you a more important question that is if you died today do you know for certain that you'd go to heaven or do you have some doubt better yet better yet you could just quote to them john 3:16 nice and slow that's a good question but let me share something that's really important for God so loved the world and that's that's you that's you and you're going to have to learn the rest of the verse if you're going to quote it to him be wise as a serpent be harmless as a dove in one of my favorite Jimmy Stewart movies Mr. Smith goes to Washington we find Jefferson Smith leader of the boy rangers appointed as a US senator and when I thought about this, Paul saying, beware, beware, and all that he went through, it reminded me of how the press can twist and lie about things that good people say. Watch. Tell us <laughs> about <laughs> yourself,
1: Senator. I hear you've got a boys club back home, Senator. Have you got any special acts to grind? acts Well, you know, pet idea, save the buffaloes, pension bill. You must have one idea you think it'd be good for the country, haven't you? Well, I have got one idea. Oh, yeah, that's what we want. Well, for the last couple of years, I've thought it would be a wonderful idea to have a national boys' camp out in our state. Boys' camp? Very good. You see, if we could just get the poor kids off the streets, out of the cities for a few months in the summer and. Let them learn something about nature and the American ideal. that. What would you think this camp would set the government back? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. You see, my idea is that the government just lends us the money for the camp, and then the boys... Pay it back by sending pennies, nickels, nothing more than a dime. Oh, that's oh, really something! Yeah. Right. Oh no, no, the government's got enough on its hands already without. Well, that's great. The government's putting too much dough in too many places now, boys. Yeah, yeah, you're a nature lover. How about it? Can you handle some of that sign language? Yeah, I could manage if. You what about some bird calls, Cynthia? You know any? Uh uh-huh. Can sure. you make it sound like an eagle? How about a No, Oh, uh, here's one. I'm The only one in the state and knows this one. Well, we could use that. Look <laughs> oh, no, that! <laughs>
0: You know, right after Mr. Smith takes an oath to become senator in the Capitol building, as he's walking up, he sees the front page of the fake news. And in 1939, even Hollywood approved of handling the press a little different back then than we do today. Watch.
1: In which the deficiency bill has been delayed is nothing short of criminal. The country and government agencies are in desperate need of these funds. The prime business of this body is the immediate passage of this urgent law.
0: So, uh, uh, God wants us to pray for the enemies of the cross, that they might be saved. He doesn't want us to go around punching them in the snout, all right? Uh, we need to, but God has put in our heart a sense of justice, and uh, didn't he? And I, I, I sense that, uh, uh, you know, I just really enjoyed that. <laughs> okay, so beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers. And then he says, beware of the concision. Uh, what in the world does concision mean? Well, it is a slur on the word circumcision, and it literally means a mutilation. These false teachers said salvation comes by circumcision. They believed the Gentiles had to become Jews in order to become Christians, and that's what you see in your notes there. Gentiles to Jews to Christians. They said the doorway to heaven was through Judaism, not Jesus. And so they wanted the Gentiles to be able to get circumcised. They wanted them to be able to to, uh, follow the Jewish ceremonial laws. They wanted them to go to the temple to worship. Uh, They wanted them uh, to stop eating ham. And Paul says, no, no, that's wrong. Salvation is not by works. Well, who are the Judaizers today? Very simply, those who say salvation is faith plus works. Instead of demanding circumcision, do you know what most churches demand? Denominational churches demand baptism. You want to go to heaven? You can't go to heaven unless you get baptized. And they require it for infants. They require it for children. They require it for adults. But may I remind you that in the Bible, Jesus died on a cross between two thieves. Both those thieves cursed him. But then one saw that Jesus is the son of God. He saw how he loved. He saw how he spoke. And he he said, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? What did Jesus say to that thief? Today thou shalt be with me in where? Paradise. Paradise. Jesus said, you're going to heaven. What can a thief who has nails in his hands, nails in his feet, what can he do to earn salvation? Nothing. But from his heart he can believe And he believed, and God forgave his sin, and he became a Christian. So there really are only two kinds of faiths or two kinds of beliefs in the world. Uh, There's man's way, and there's God's way. There's faith plus works, and there's faith alone, which you find in your Bible. Uh, All religions, it doesn't matter what the name is. It's do this and do that. But the Bible says done. Done. Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He completed the work for us. And you note, you see, salvation is a gift that is received by faith in Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And so now Paul begins to describe true believers in verse 3. Paul gives the Philippian Christians and us three evidences that you are a real Christian. And it has to do with what's on the inside. It has to do with who you are in Christ. It has to do with something that no one sees, but eventually everyone sees. Why? Because salvation that is real on the inside will eventually make its way to the outside. And so I ask you to examine your heart I ask you to make sure that you are a genuine Christian. And so this is what he says. We are the circumcision. That is, we are the spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, and that means that our sins are forgiven. And here it is, which worship God in the spirit. And so someone who is a true Christian is someone who truly worships God. Our worship is created by the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of us and not by ceremonies, not by ritual. With the woman of the well, Jesus said, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit, from your heart, and in truth. Here are a couple of pictures. Here you see tens of thousands of Muslims bowing down at Mecca. Here you see some Tibetan monks and they're climbing on their knees up these stone steps. Here's a Filipino, uh, a dozen men, every year, every Easter. They are crucified for one hour and they are worshiping, but they're not worshiping according to the truth of the Bible. The world is filled with people who worship, but their worship is prompted by tradition. It's prompted by culture. It's prompted by fear. It's prompted by family expectation. It's prompted by, because they want to remove the guilt of their sin. True worship is prompted by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And Christians have a strong desire to worship God. We are saved, why? To become worshipers. So what is worship? Worship is service. The word means to minister, to serve, to show honor. It is respectful, spiritual service. Worship is a broad term. It includes our lifestyle, our public worship, our singing, our giving, listening to sermons, listening to teaching. It's our witnessing. It's everything we do. Look on page four. Whether therefore you eat eat, or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You ask, can I glorify God when I eat? Yes, yes. If first you thank God for the meal. First Timothy 4.4. 4. So worship is service and worship is delighting in God. Have you ever noticed that the music we sing, sometimes it's rejoicing, sometimes it's just almost fun? Uh, Some of it is meditative and deep and loving and adoring, and sometimes it's calm and gentle and peaceful. All those ways are just simply the the songwriter putting our worship to music. A description of true believers. Someone who worships God, and let her be someone who rejoices in Jesus. I mean, this means your thoughts are about Christ. Bring delight to your heart. You love to think about Christ. You love to talk about Christ. You love to sing about Christ. And when you think about Christ, you can't help but think about what he has done for you. What has he done for you? He gave you life. He forgave your sins. He gave you a home in heaven. It brings joy. He comforts you in trials. He gives you power to break old habits. A third description of a true believer is someone who completely trusts in Christ. No confidence in the flesh. He's our Lord and our Savior. He's our life. We boast in him. All the credit is his. All the glory is his. As our ensembles sing Jesus, he, he walks on the water. He speaks to the sea. He, he brought, brought sight to the blind. He brought strength to the lame to walk again. His power over death. Paul now tells us That he once trusted in his good works as a Jewish rabbi before he was saved. As a lost man by the world's standards, he was considered an amazing man. Think of what he did. On the outside, he had it all together, but on the inside, he was lonely, he was miserable, he was without peace. If anyone could be saved by religion, Saul of Tarsus would have been the man. In verse 4, he says that, look at the confidence I had in the flesh before I was saved. More than any man, he attempted to prove to God that he deserved heaven. And three areas are mentioned Paul and Israel, Paul and the law. And Paul and the enemies circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Uh, and Hebrew, the Hebrews. I speak the Hebrew language. uh, He's filled with Jewish pride. Uh, With the law, he's a Pharisee. He kept the oral tradition above the Old Testament. He was blameless, not sinless. Uh, When he sinned, he would bring the appropriate sacrifice to the temple. With the enemies, Saul of Tarsus was the most bitter persecutor of the church, and he did it, he thought, in the name of God. So what did he do? He arrested Christians. He tortured Christians. He put Christians to death. He testified of that in Acts 22, verses 1 to 5. So if anyone could earn heaven by opposing God's enemies, this is the man in today's terms, Saul of Tarsus was the religious winner. He earned all the trophies, the Medal of Honor, the MVP, the gold medals. If they had magazines in his day, his picture would have been in the front page with the headline, Religious Zealot of the Decade, Times, Man of the Year. But in his calendar, he had one more entry. Next stop, Damascus and on his way to arrest more Christians God arrested his attention God saved him And so look what he does with this pile of religious works in verse 7 what things were gained to me those I counted lost for Christ Do you know what he's saying He's saying that everything that, that he counted on helping him to get to heaven was really keeping him out of heaven. Uh, each good work that he did was more like a, a blindfold that went across his eyes. Another persecution. Another good work. Another ceremony, mikvah bath. And again and again, he's more blind to the truth until Jesus came along and removed the blindfolds and he could see That Jesus Christ is the son of God, the one who died for him, and he trusted Christ alone. Hey, have you ever felt worthless? Have you ever said something or did something and you regretted it? Have you ever hurt someone uh, with your words? Have you ever hurt someone with your actions? If you're honest, you'd have to say, yes, I've sinned. I've hurt others. God lets you have these guilty feelings in your conscience so that you might choose to come to Christ and to be forgiven. And if you come, He will forgive you. He'll forgive all of your sins. You see, Jesus humbles me because I'm so bad that He had to die for me. But Jesus lifts me up because I'm so valued that He would die for me can you say with Paul every single thing I was looking for in life I found I found it in Jesus Christ may we pray Father thank you Uh, thank you for the word of God thank you for Paul's testimony of before and after he was saved and Father I pray today if there be someone in this auditorium and they're not sure if heaven is their home Maybe they're hearing this good news for the first time. I pray the Spirit of God will be tapping on the door of their heart and they will understand your love. They will understand your salvation, that they cannot earn heaven by doing good works, by baptism, by sacraments, by membership, by giving, but to receive your gift by faith. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed as we have this moment of invitation prayer, I want to ask you today, do you know for certain that heaven is your home? Do you know that if you died, that when your soul leaves your body, you'd come into God's presence, into heaven? Because you are a genuine Christian, because there was a time in your life that you made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And you can say you're born again. Maybe you don't remember the date, but you know for certain that today you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of all of your sins, that he died and rose again for you. And you're not ashamed to let others know about that. With their heads bowed, their eyes closed, you say, Pastor Wendell, I am a Christian. I'm saved I've got a Bible reason that I know I'm going to heaven. Would you simply raise your hand all over this auditorium? Only if you know for sure. God bless you. You may put your hands down. You say, Pastor, I think I'd go to heaven. I hope I'd go to heaven, but I'm not sure. You know, I'm not going to ask you to join the church. I'm not going to ask you to get baptized, but I'm going to ask you to listen to Jesus who said, Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will give you forgiveness. So the Bible says, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. The Bible says that Jesus died for you and rose again and offers this gift. So call today. You say, what does that mean? It means acknowledging that you are a sinner and your sin will keep you out of heaven But God will forgive your sin, all of them, past, present, and future, because you will put your faith in Christ and Christ alone. If you'd like to do that with me today, as I did many years ago, you can pray in this invitation prayer. You can pray from your heart. God will hear the prayer of your heart. If you'd like to pray with me now, I'll not call you out. I'll not embarrass you in any way. I would be delighted to pray with you. You can pray sincerely, you can pray silently, you can pray earnestly. Pray with me now, right where you're seated. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. Please come into my heart. And become my Lord and Savior. I receive your salvation today. With their heads bowed, with their eyes closed, if you just pray with me and you meant it, would you simply raise your hand? I want to pray for you, anyone at all. I just pray with you, Pastor, and I meant it. Just hold it up high for a moment. God bless you. Anyone else? God bless you. Anyone else? I prayed with you and I meant it. God bless you. Thank you. You put your hand down. Anyone else? Now, Father, you see these hands and you've made a promise that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. And, Father, we believe that promise. We believe that forgiveness is complete. And we rejoice in Jesus Christ for this great, wonderful salvation. Father, I pray that each one of us now We'll give our lives to serve you, to worship you, to rejoice in you in a greater way. May you bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. As we stand together, we're going to sing a song of invitation this morning. Jesus paid it all. How appropriate to go with a message. We can't work our way to heaven, but Jesus did. He died. He rose again. He offers the gift. And so, as we sing today, maybe you want to pray this altar. Maybe you want to pray in your seat. If you want to see a pastor or a pastor's wife, step right out. It's a public invitation. You come as we sing together.